0: Welcome back to the Hard Parking Podcast, this is your host Jay Finning, did another episode, bonus episode number 405 of the Last Dance ESPN documentary covering the 1997-1998 Chicago Bulls. This was a little longer, so I'm just going to jump right into it, thank my sponsors at the end. With us today, we have Brian Kalma returning for his fourth show, Jay Jacobs of the I Hate Average Podcast, and Corey Harrison of the Outer Balance Sports Podcast. All three of our podcasts are available pretty much anywhere you get your normal podcast. So let's just jump right into it. A young man with dreams of greatness on the baseball diamond, possessing the burning desire that could get him there. These are visions of what might have been, but reality has never looked so good. Everyone, welcome back.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thanks, man. Good
0: to be back. All right, so we have Jay, Corey, and Brian back. Ben will be back next week. I have a few things I want to talk about from the last episode. Some of this stuff, like actually all this stuff I put down, you have to just trust me, I didn't put it down after last night. So the first thing is, remember, we're trying to figure out a player that Jordan punked that quit the team. Well, they still haven't showed us that. I don't know if it was edited or not. But Corey Benjamin, because we came up with Corey Benjamin, and then Brian said Corey Blunt. Mm. Corey Benjamin was the guy that, as soon as Jordan retired, he said he retired because he got old and he can't handle me. So he was that rookie, and then that one you got, y'all know the story. Corey Benjamin, you can you can look it up. Jordan showed up and basically whooped his ass and, and practice. Uh, second thing is Space Jam, that was you know recorded after he came back when they first lost. You know that summer,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I was incorrect in that Corey had asked a question that I completely missed until we were doing editing. You think that the Chicago Bulls would have beat Houston? This is a good question, and we have to think about, in my opinion, I think about the way the Bulls were constructed at that time. So with Corey, the one who asked that question, and again, I apologize because I completely missed it. You know What what are your thoughts on that, Corey? So we're talking about that Bulls
3: team constructed the way it was. I I actually went back and um, looked at some other uh, footage about um, that team, and Hakeem Olajuwon was a problem. And I don't see anybody on that Bulls roster being able to contain him. He was the X factor on that team. You know, they had their shooters. They had, you know, Cassell, the Smith guy, I forgot his name. um, Kenny Smith. Kenny Smith, uh, Robert Horry. So they had some shooters and they had, a, you know, the way that team was constructed, they would have had a difficult time beating them, in my opinion.
1: Jay? I I completely disagree on I think uh, if you would have had Robin, he would have canceled out. Robin Elijah wasn't on that
0: team, though. He wasn't on that team.
1: What? Oh, and to, you're right. Uh, yeah,
2: because he can't
1: 96. 96. You're right. But I still think Houston wouldn't have been able to contain the Bulls. I, I think Houston caught um, a Knicks team. They barely beat the Knicks. So the Knicks just had some bad coaching choices. I definitely think the Bulls are a better coach. So they definitely would beat Houston.
0: What was that finals? You said they barely beat them. I don't know. Was it a would it go seven games?
1: Yeah, it went seven games. Did it? Actually, I mean, I didn't the pay Knicks, attention. I was the, the Knicks. The Knicks should have won it. They, the Knicks was up three two going into game six, but then they lost game six and seven. So they blew it.
0: Full disclosure, I was not in a good place mentally at that time. And actually, I didn't really think about it, but that's going to be part of something coming up later. I okay. remember them playing, but. Yo, I just was not in a good place. I was a knuckleheaded 18, 19 year old.
2: Brian, what do you think? Yeah, I think as far as matchups go, I give it to the Bulls because although Akeem was the problem, I agree with that. Um, I think on all of the other matchups, or I think the Bulls had the uh, the advantage. Uh, I think that Michael and Scotty had the advantage at the two. Sam Cassell was a rookie that first year. So first two years goes and wins two championships, but at the time I forget who the starting point guard was for the Bulls at the time. You know, you can't. You know, was it BJ? BJ was a starter, okay. Because I know it's like him and John Paxson were going and um, platooning that uh, point guard position. But I think that you know the Bulls would have won it eventually. But down low, Akeem, you know, he he definitely was a problem. But I think the rest of the matchups would have made up for it for the Bulls. But the other thing too, the more I thought about this, is that. You saw how how much, you know, they struggled in that third uh three in that third championship on that first three beat. A lot of the different pressures and things that were going on at that time. So, I mean, that's a variable too, I think. And so would that have mounted? What you know, what would have come out in the press at that time? Would it have would it have affected the team worse than it affected them, you know, in that third championship against the uh, the Suns in 93? Um, but still, we don't know. But just looking at it matchup to matchup, I give it to the Bulls.
0: So, my thought on the matter is the Houston Rockets and actually the Texas teams, we just call it the Texas Triangle. They were always a problem for the Bulls. They'd always play the Texas Triangle just before the All Star break. I ran the numbers, and the Bulls during their first three-peat run, because back then you didn't play the teams as many times as you do now, you know, it's like one and one as opposed to, you know, opposite conference twice. The Houston Rockets were five and one against the Bulls during those three seasons. Now I know the regular season is a regular season, but still, I don't know. I can't sit here and say that the Bulls would have ran off eight in a row and they would have beat Houston. That wasn't a very good Houston team, but they were good enough to win the chip on a shortened season. If you remember, Brian, we talked about it before. Your Sonics, you know, they were the number one seed and they got taken out by your boy Dikembe Mutombo and the and the Nuggets. Yeah, that that, <laughs> that that thing won't go. Hey, with Dikembe on the ground, going. Ah, and yep. and, 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 and I hated like,
2: Dikembe ever since.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but
0: I don't know. I don't know. That was a that was a that wasn't a bad Houston team, obviously. And yeah, Olajuwon is one of the greatest ever who doesn't really get talked about as much, unless you're asking asking Shaq, and he always names him and Xiao Ming as the two of the guys that he's just like, wow, those dudes were something special. <laughs> Moving on. So, what's uh one thing that surprised you the most? Um, Because there's a lot of surprises, I think, in these two episodes, educational wise and whatnot. Starting with Brian, what's one thing that surprised you the most?
2: Um, I touched on it during the last uh, episode, but I, you know, I was surprised that they asked the gambling question during, you know, the part of the interview when they were talking about James Jordan's death. I didn't really think that they were going to touch on that subject very much at all. So it was um, pretty enlightening to just hear how everybody reacted, you know, to the news that there was speculation that James Jordan's death might be linked to Michael Jordan's gambling habit. So I'm, I'm glad they touched on it. Of course, I didn't expect that they were going to do a very deep dive into it, but I'm, you know, I'm glad that they addressed it. So that was a nice little surprise.
1: Jay, what do you got? Um, a lot of basketball fans have the conspiracy theory about Jordan being suspended for a year and a half. So I'm glad that they touched on that too. It was, it was something different and it, Something I would never think that that Jordan even acknowledged, but it was, it was interesting that he acknowledged
0: it. So, do you guys believe David Stern? Absolutely mm-hmm. not. No. No
1: way. No way. <laughs> <laughs> no way. I don't know. I'm watching him. I'm
0: like, you know, he was he's a politician, and Jordan was the NBA in a sense. So I nah. don't know. If, I don't. I'm not going to call him out as a liar, but I just thought that was interesting.
3: Corey, what was the um, the thing that surprised you the most? Well, I was going to go for the Jordan. I mean, the, the James Jordan. Um, but i so i want to repeat that one, but um the fact that um they used the excuse um of the media to put him in double a <laughs> i mean because i mean he's thirty one years old his basket he hasn't played baseball since high school, and you know he he started off really well, but then they started hitting him with these these uh these pitches these the breaking balls. And then he was—he was unable to, you know, his brain wasn't able to, to uh, formulate that he's a—he's a basketball player, and it just didn't look right whenever they would show some of the the, the pitfalls that he had as a baseball player. So it's kind of weird that they actually put him in Double A, and he shouldn't have been with those guys at all
0: because of the uh, there wasn't enough room for the press. <laughs> We'll, we're going to touch on that a little bit later. I think the biggest thing that surprised me was the Le Bradford Smith story. I've always heard about the Le Bradford Smith story. I never knew that it was 100% made up as far as he put yeah. his arm around me and said, good game. I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. Yeah. I, I just heard about the story, but I didn't know the whole thing was made up.
1: <laughs> shows how crazy Jordan is. It shows how- <laughs> He makes up stories in his brain.
0: Yeah, Wait, which we've uh, all known, but.
2: <laughs> You've always got to have some type of motivating factor, right? They also talked about before the finals against the Sonics, where uh, George Carl was in the same place having dinner, and then he just, you know, walked right past MJ, didn't say anything. And so MJ admitted that he used that as kind of his fuel to start off the series, like, oh, okay, we're, we're both Tar Heels, you know, and I thought that we were going to, you know, exchange pleasantries, you know, being in the same place at the same time, but I guess not okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, anything to get the fire going, I guess.
0: So um, did you see the follow-up on SVP?
2: No, I didn't see that.
0: So did they had they George, George
2: Carl about yeah, that? Yeah, George okay, Carl what was on say? there.
0: And George Carl said that absolutely happened. He, yeah. was advised, <laughs> he was advised not to talk to Jordan because one of George Carl's assistant coaches was the assistant coach on the Pistons. Okay. So he said, don't even acknowledge him because he'll act like he's your friend and be all nice and then he'll destroy you. And so it kind of went the opposite way, which is really kind of funny. So it's like, damn, if you do, damn, if you don't. (laughs) I made a note that we've seen raw emotion from Michael Jordan now four times since his Hall of Fame speech, if you include the Hall of Fame speech. Obviously, the Hall of Fame speech is Kobe Bryant's speech, and then twice last night. Um, Another food for thought, you guys know the significance of uh, George Kohler? It says that it's his, uh, his best friend and his personal assistant. His story is, so George is a limo driver. His ride didn't show up at the airport, and the Bulls didn't send anybody to pick up Michael Jordan from the airport when he was a rookie. And so that's when they connected. He gave Jordan a ride, and he's been his personal chauffeur and friend ever since.
2: Man, right place at the right time, huh?
0: Yeah. So with the James Jordan murder, you know, what did you guys learn about that? I remember they're covering that a lot back in the day. When that happened, it was on the news nonstop. Did you guys learn anything new about that? I know Corey, you were very curious about it because you said it's been kind of difficult finding information on it. So we'll
3: start with you. Well, I didn't know that they dumped his body in the river. I thought he was still found in the car, So that was something that stuck out to me. Um, I didn't know they had actually disposed of the body. That was um, one key thing that um, I didn't know previously.
0: Did it change your thoughts on anything?
3: Not really, because a lot of the stuff, like you said, they had aired it and I do kind of remember when it happened. Um, I do remember the car. Um, I remember the plates when they found him, you know, he had pulled over it was said to be that he was sleeping and then there was just a random act of violence, you know, then they start linking it to the gambling, which I think it was a low blow, very tacky, even if it was true, you know, he just lost his father, you know, it just was the wrong time, you know, and then you think about, you know, these athletes, you know, having to go through these things publicly. And we have the luxury to to kind of compartmentalize and, you know, deal with things privately, you know, as, you know, regular people like us. But he's in the public spotlight, you know, regardless of what you think about him. I think that was just low. Brian?
2: Yeah, the the detail that really caught my attention that I didn't recall was uh, the plates being removed. Um, Mm. And then showing some of the footage from the old news footage of uh, the scene where the back windshield of the car is blown out. And so... The thing that stuck out to me was, you know, last week I had said that I did believe that it was tied to, you know, something with his gambling, you know, and I kind of still believe that. But it's because of this after watching last night's episodes is with those things, with the license plates being gone and then the window being shot out and then disposing of his body, like Corey said, it seemed like it was a very planned out act. You know, it didn't seem very random to me, if anything. If a couple of kids who randomly came across James Jordan's car, you know, see it parked off to the side of the road and find a, you know, older gentleman sleeping inside and decide to rob him, why did they not just commit the act and just run? You know, why go through all of that, all, all that effort to remove the plates, remove James Jordan from the vicinity, and then to dump him elsewhere? That seems like a lot of work and a lot of time if it was random. so. It just, to me, it just, you know, made a little bit more sense that it could have been tied to, you know, maybe it wasn't Jordan's gambling per se, but it just it just seemed a little bit more than random in my eyes.
0: Jay, what you got?
1: Um, I, I kind of agree also. Um, it could have been a hit. Like, you know, sometimes the mafia could contract people out. They could have contracted those 18-year-olds out to do it. Um, sometimes that happens. But I definitely don't think it was just a random event. It uh, just... It doesn't seem right. It is. Why would you just why would you just want to if you're just going to rob him, you rob him You're not going to kill him and then dispose of the body to me.
0: Brian, you brought some good points. Um, sometimes shit does happen. There's a I mean, random I mean violence is random, period. And I'm wondering if they once they robbed him or whatever they did, they were like, oh, shit, that's James Jordan. That's Michael Jordan's father. Sure. Yeah. Because I remember and I could be misremembering, but I remember them kind of bragging about it. And getting themselves in trouble by flashing the championship rings and shit like that and home mm. videos. When you're 18, you're dumb. Like I like I said when we started this whole thing, I did a lot of stupid shit when I was 18, 19, 20. And I wouldn't do anything like that. You know, when you're panicking, you're young and dumb, you're gonna do the most extreme thing possible, assuming it was truly random violence. I'm not gonna completely discount that it had any relation to anything somewhere else. But, I mean, that's – they would have had to have been following him because, you know, the cell phone game wasn't very strong back then. Hey, I'm calling you from a payphone. There's James Jordan. He was driving a nice Lexus SC, what, 400, I think. I want to say it was a maroon Lexus. You know, that was a hot car at the time. And I don't, I don't know. It was a good conversation point for sure. So, um, when Jordan started to – so, he goes to the, the White Sox game and word gets out that he may retire when, you know, when Falk – kind of leans over and says, MJ wants to quit. I found myself, once all the news started breaking, and I felt really weird for this, I found myself getting like a little emotional over it. Like someone just was died. You know, like they're getting ready to announce this guy's death. I'm like, what the, what the hell is going on with me right now? Like, man, I, my eyes are starting to well. And these are, this is years later. George's not dead. But they just all the different news outlets were, were breaking the news like it was someone dying. You know, And I was just like, like what did you guys think of all, all that? How big of a deal it was at the time? This was before he even said, I'm done. Jay, we'll start with you.
1: I remember it, and I don't because I, I was young at the time. But now I think about the magnitude of it, like the biggest athlete in the world, just in the middle of his prime after just winning the championship. It's like maybe – that's like Tom Brady quitting five years ago or something like that. It's just – it it, it it seems so unreal, and I just the magnitude, just, just looking looking back at it, just understanding the magnitude of it, kind of hit me.
3: Corey, just dissecting that speech, I don't know if anyone actually caught it, but he left the door open for a return. Really feeling the fire to the the walking away because of a suspension. Because mm. if you think about it, he said, if you know, if I feel like the urge to come back, you know, I'll come back. You know, he said that in that speech. If you just dissect it and just listen to him, he did leave the door open to return. So that really had my mind wondering: was this really a suspension? Because he actually didn't seem like he really wanted to. It just seemed like he was forced to. Um, that in a vacuum is
0: great. Um, but as I I played on the, the air the uh, the broadcast portion of the podcast, and as they alluded to he was talking about maybe hanging it up before that last season and 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 they didn't really, so you guys aren't armed with the knowledge of, because they didn't really show it on the last dance, but he and his father would talk daily about maybe that being his last season and then I think they did say that when they won the championship, only he and his father felt like that was, they like knew that was his last game. And so I think with him running out of, you know, okay. I've won three in a row, championships, MVP, scoring titles. The game's not hard to me because it really wasn't hard to him. He, of course, he's going to struggle like some people struggle from time to time. But overall, he stayed a significant level above even the second best player in the league. And running dry, father gets murdered. You know, I can't even imagine where his mind's at. Um, but I mean, that's a good that's a good point. Also about the gambling, but. I guess we just have to believe that he wasn't suspended, but I do feel like he was still thinking about retiring.
2: Yeah, I got to agree with that too, because when it comes to the suspension um, piece of it, um, and you asked, do we believe David Stern? Maybe I'm the one in the group that does, because he, he's the biggest attraction in the league. If he was going to get suspended, 18 months is a very long time. Just imagine how much revenue you're losing by your number one ticket, you know, being sidelined for 18 months. But when it came to Jay's uh, question regarding when it was happening at the time, um, that was probably the first time in my sports fandom that I really basically was on the verge of tears or maybe cried even at the time because I was just such a, you know, Jordan fan at the time. Um, the only other times that I had ever really felt that, that kind of sadness in sports was when Ken Griffey Jr. decided to go and play for the Cincinnati Reds instead of coming back to the Seattle Mariners. I, I legitimately cried um, because Jordan and Griffey are my two guys when it comes to my sports fandom. Those two are 1A and 1B. The other time that I nearly lost it was when Sean Kemp went to the fucking Cleveland Cavaliers. Man, I could not fucking believe it. Man. <laughs> so you're you are saying when you came and, back and you can hear it in my voice, right? He's, I mean, it's. He's still mad. Yeah, no, you know, you know, what's funny, Corey, is that Jay and I were texting last weekend because they played the 98 uh, All-Star game on ESPN. And one of the first things I said to him on his text when he hit me up, he goes, ESPN 2 right now. I said, I hate seeing Sean Kemp in a Cavs uniform. And so just that type of effect was the same effect. But when Jordan decided to retire, that's the first time I had ever felt it because it was one of the first times I had really idolized any athlete in my life. And so that was just, it was a punch in the gut. But, you know, seeing that footage, you know, over 25 years later, I mean, you do have to understand that the man was going through so much at the time. So I think I'm, I'm more of the uh, mentality of, it was just his time to go mentally it just he needed to let go at that point in time
0: there was nothing else for him to do like i said he's won everything he's probably set out i mean at the time if someone says you're going to win 3 more he might be like i don't care i don't i can't do it and that's another reason that i think even if the if he kept playing i don't know i don't i can't say 100% that they would have beat Houston because i feel like they needed to all fall down to get stronger mm-hmm. reshuffle and come back so maybe maybe they don't beat uh, the Houston Rockets. You know what I mean. And then, and then, uh, one more thing on that before we move on: the 18-month suspension. It's a valid conspiracy, but think about when have we ever seen a suspension that long for someone who's never got suspended once across any sports? Right. Let's move on to baseball. So I know some of you were looking forward to seeing more. I think even Ben was looking forward to seeing more about Jordan and his his time away. From the Bulls, him buying that three hundred fifty thousand dollars bus for his teammates and stuff it looked like they were having a great time, and he could be a kid again. Brian, what are your, what were you thinking at the time? Because you love baseball, but baseball is a sacred sport, and it's it's made rules. Really yeah, it is. Of and, you know,
2: rules. Yeah, baseball is. Yeah, the unwritten rules, right, is what you're alluding to, right? Yeah, but when it comes to baseball, um, I guess that was. Kind of the consolation prize, I guess, back as a 12, 13-year-old when I was like, oh, Jordan's going to retire. Oh, he's going to play baseball. Cool. Um, But the thing that always surprises me is really how well he did, because a lot of it is highlighted on how how shitty he played. Now, of course, he hadn't played baseball in, what, half his life, basically at that point in time. But when you go and look at the numbers at the end of that 18 months that he played, um, he scratched 200 average with getting sent straight to double a and anybody that says well baseball is an easy game all right well you know there are many <laughs> facets to baseball if you want to look at hitting for example i challenge anybody to go to a cage and set the velocity at 65 miles an hour and i guarantee you will not make contact period and when you go to those levels at like you know even at you know high a single a um you're talking about guys now in the game today who are touching 95 to 100 at that low level imagine what you're seeing when you're making it up through the ranks and get up to the major leagues so he was in double a and these kids aren't scrubs that are pitching to him so they're probably at that point in time in the mid 90s they're probably touching between 80 to 95 miles an hour at the top and not only that you're talking about pitches with movement and for him to be able to go in there and scratch 200 at the end of his first full season, that's, that's pretty remarkable. The other thing that um, Terry Francona also said during his interview was that he had a 13-game hitting streak to start it off. <laughs> so if that's true, wow, that's, that's great. Um, I don't know if I believe that because a 13-game hitting streak for anybody at any level is remarkable. It's, it's almost unheard of. But to be able to get to the point where he did it in in eighteen months, I think was pretty commendable for the way that he did it.
0: I think it was true, but I think there were layups, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, little dribbling were, down were, the line, running it. Yeah, out. Yeah, they
0: were probably like, "Okay, here's MJ. Once tell yeah. people hit my ball, I mean, you know, you're dealing with. I mean, they're they're still great baseball players compared to all of us." But Corey, right. what do you have on that?
3: Kind of echoing what Brian was saying. I'm not really a a big baseball guy, but just to open it up with that streak. And then you can kind to of see the struggles after that, like I was telling you before about him struggling to hit the, the breaking ball. And then how he finished uh, off that first season and how high the, his average was just, you know, starting out. You know, at 31 years old, you're having to teach yourself a brand new skill. Just think about if you were to play something all your life, and then at a certain age, you know, you're trying to learn something brand new. And I don't know a whole lot about baseball, but it's a thinking sport because if you think about it, if you're throwing the ball nine to five miles, and it's not just, you know, just swinging the bat and hitting the ball, there's different types of uh, balls that they're throwing at you. It might be a slider, it might be changing up some kind of way, but at 31, he's able to make contact with the ball. Even if he's hitting it, that's remarkable, like you said. Because he's 31 years old, having to teach his brain something that he hasn't done in years.
2: I want to piggyback on something Corey said, too, is that there are three major aspects of baseball. So you have your defense, you have your hitting, and you have your base running. And everything is situational. And, it's, and like Corey said, it's not just the act of hitting a ball or catching a ball or throwing a ball. It's, you have to know what to do in every single situation. So if you're playing defense, if you're running, or if you're the guy at the plate, you got to know how many outs there are. You got to know where the runners are at and you got to know what to do. If you hit the ball on the ground, where on the ground are you hitting it? When you hit the ball in the air, where in the air are you hitting it? How far are you hitting it? What are the other runners in front of you going to do in these certain situations? So it's so many layers on top of just what you see on the game. You know, like when you're watching it on TV, there are just so many things going on at the same time that every single position player and every single player on offense and every base runner is thinking about those things all at the same time.
1: Jay I, I I think I think just his dedication, they was saying how he applied the same practice uh his same practice mindset, how he was beating people at the batting cage and he was staying late, just uh just having that dedication that it wasn't just for basketball that he had it for baseball also, and how they talked about how he might have continued playing if it wasn't for the MLB strike, so we never know what would have happened.
0: Thank God the strike happened.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah so yeah let me add one more thing Jay, on this since, since it's baseball too so one of the things that i loved about playing baseball too and i love about watching baseball is that to me it's the ultimate kid's sport right like what other sport do you see where even professionals are chewing on chewing gum spitting seeds you know things like that it's just kind of a i saw it as jordan when you saw that That footage of him in the locker room, like playing ping pong with his teammates, things like that. I think baseball players have more of a relaxed attitude inside and outside of the game because you're still pulling pranks on each other in the dugout during the game. You're doing that, you know, in the clubhouse, in the locker room, you know, when it's not game time. You're doing that on the bus. I just think that it's just it's it's just a much different atmosphere. When you're, when you're playing on a baseball team than if you were playing like on a football team or on a basketball team. I think football and basketball are much more serious sports. You know, it looked like he got a chance to just let go.
0: That explains maybe why Michael Jordan was so irate at that SI cover because he's like, what are you guys doing? I spent, you know, 200% of my heart and, and soul trying to get better at this. But sometimes, you know, your effort is your effort, but your results are your results. Now we know that, you know, he's, did well given the situation, but for SI to come at him with that cover, was it fair? Was it foul? I have some follow ups for that. So what do you guys feel because of the relationship that he had with Sports Illustrated? Did they owe him? Because he said he was blindsided by it. Like he had no idea they didn't ask him to interview. All of a sudden he's on the cover. You know, maggot Michael, you're an embarrassment. To, you and the White Sox are an embarrassment to baseball. You know, they still have a job to do their job, or you know, was that kind of out of bounds in a way, Corey?
3: I think, you know, as a journalist, around that time, sports, you know, kind of like halted, and they're just trying to find some kind of story. And to me, I think Jordan was this target, you know, just either good or bad. And they could, they can find anything on him, whether good or bad. They they would run a report. And if it catch fire, then they got a good story. So it doesn't matter. Like, they don't really care about how it made them feel as a person or how their relationship was. that story caught fire. So for him to struggle out the gate and, you know, it, it ran and everybody wanted to watch it, wanted to, you know, see what was going on. So I just feel like they were doing a job. He felt slighted by it, but he knew he was in over his head going to that level of baseball and he hadn't played for so long and and anybody else wouldn't have been able to do that. It's fair game. Jay.
1: Um, To me, I think it's like twofold. I think one thing is, um, he's Michael Jordan, right? And you're at the top level and you just walk away. A lot of people was upset and I think Sports Illustrated probably was upset, um, right? Just people who are, I guess, quote unquote, sports purists, they was upset about it. And just sometimes people feel like they own athletes and they want to pigeonhole athletes. So I think him making his own decisions back then, you know, look how people cheat treat LeBron for making his own decisions. So imagine the 90s, Right, so he, they was probably a little bit more upset. So that was one thing. And the second thing is, in their eyes, he did suck. <laughs> he, he, he was going to play baseball and he did suck. So it's twofold. They, they was upset and they was actually happy to see him fail.
0: Brian. I'm
2: going
1: to take this angle. Um, it's fair game because
2: they're reporters, but we already had a basis of comparison. You know, Bo Jackson, two-sport athlete, probably the best to ever do it neon Dion at the time atlanta braves and the atlanta falcons um and i believe at the time he was the only player to ever and probably still is the only player to ever play in a super bowl and in a world series not many people know that danny age was drafted by the toronto blue jays and spent a couple of years in their minor league system before pursuing a, a, a full-time basketball career um and he, he was pretty damn good at baseball too from from the footage that could be seen from him so there is a basis of comparison and um he probably just didn't live up to the level that those other guys did that did it before him. So to me, it was fair game. And for Jordan to get hurt. Okay. That's of course, of course, he's going to, he, he's going to feel slighted by the cover and uh, the article that was written, but there were others that came before him that did it much better than he did. So I think it's fair game.
0: Um, I don't really like the comparison with Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, Brian Jordan, and the rest of the people who are two way athletes because they came into the league as professional two way athletes from day one. I think we have a lot of players in different sports that could play two sports starting out. So I don't really like that comparison as much, but I do think it is fair game in a sense. But to say Baggett Michael, Michael Jordan, and the Chicago White Sox are an embarrassment to baseball, I can understand the headline would. You know, rub someone the wrong way. But the headline is a headline. Did some digging today. And Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated decided he would write a long article because of The Last Dance. And what he said and what he found is that the rest of the league didn't really feel the same way as that SI cover did, which makes me wonder. Why, why the SI cover? you think something like that would be, okay, we've talked to general managers from around the league, and they're all like, get the hell out of here. This is bullshit. If it wasn't Michael Jordan, blah, blah, blah. But they've talked to Oakland A's, because Oakland A's were set, apparently, according to this article that came out today, they were set to try to move Jordan around as well. And mm-hmm. by the numbers, he really wasn't that bad. Like, one of the excuses they gave was that when that cover came out, Jordan was just on his third week. Well, yeah, that. Well came out in March of 1994. Jordan was playing ball since August of 93. So he'd actually been playing for a while. So I don't know what, yeah, he may have been moved up for three weeks. Um, But when they ran the numbers, what they're saying is that of his 51 runs batted, 51 walks, and 30 stolen bases, of the previous four seasons, the Chicago White Sox had had 1,200 players in their organization on that level majors and minors, it says, none of them reached those thresholds that Jordan did with Birmingham. And of the last 30 years, which is basically from 1990 to 2019, wow, they said there were 8,000 players in the White Sox organization. Only nine of them hit those numbers. Five of them reached the big leagues. So, you know, could he have played in the big leagues? Maybe he wouldn't have been a star. He would have been – I don't know how many people on the roster. He would have been sent up and down all year, 25th player or whatever. But I don't know, that cover doesn't really reflect the reality it sounds like based on the article that I read, because I don't remember. One thing I do remember, though, have you guys ever sold anything that uh, you regret selling memorabilia-wise? So in October of 1994, the fall after I graduated high school, I went to visit my aunt in Portland, Oregon. She has a friend who worked at Nike. So she brought me over a gift. I have a book, a Nike book autographed by Phil Knight made out to me. And she took me to visit the Nike compound in Beaverton, Oregon. So we got to go to all the cool buildings and stuff. And then we stopped by the employee store. Now, I don't know how it is now, but back then, you weren't allowed to go in unless you're an employee. Not even if you were a friend. So I waited outside and she went inside and got me some cool stuff. But one thing that she got me was a Michael Jordan spring training baseball. And on that baseball, on one side, has a swoosh on it. Other side, had a Jumpman logo inside a baseball diamond. Nice. It says Nike Mm -hmm. limited edition spring training baseball, whatever and i sold that thing and for how much sh- shockingly not a lot oh man i think i listed it several times i don't remember how much i sold it for but i remember it wasn't a lot it's one of the small things i used to keep it in a crown royal bag mm. in the drawer but it's one of the, the small things that you know every time they talk about jordan playing baseball i think about it and i'm like it's <laughs> pretty pretty yeah, fucking cool should have
2: kept
3: it yeah. that's a yeah. good key it was a story that after it's totally unrelated. When uh, Kobe passed away, I think it was um, Jeff Van Gundy. He had signed a pair of basketball sneakers from Kobe Bryant personally. He had these shoes, and he and he saw, and he gave them to a kid. Then Kobe Bryant uh. passes away. Did y'all hear about
2: that? Yeah, he was uh. saying. That, like, uh, one of the tribute shows, or a telecast, or something. I,
3: yeah, I was like, wow, you had a signed shoe from Kobe, and you gave them away. Now, I think that's related. But here's the thing: those people, you like, you
0: know, think about what you have till it's gone, right? Because hmm. all those people in those circles, man, they probably have rooms full of jerseys and shoes and all sorts of signed stuff. And you hear about these famous athletes; they give away their their memorabilia eventually, or if they, you know, if they don't charity it, they just give it away to people, friends, and stuff like that. But there's going to be a day, like, you see behind Brian, all that stuff behind him, that's not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to Jordan versus Kerr, the fight. The fight that's <laughs> been talked about for years and is finally explained. What are your guys' thoughts about that? Is it the same as you thought or different?
3: I think, for me, they led on to believe it was a little bit more than what it really was. It really wasn't. They made it seem like it was just an all-out brawl or something like that. He Kerr hit him in the chest, and then he hit him in the eye. And he got sent away. That was it. I mean, like, but for him to, to so to speak, like, stand up to Michael Jordan and gain that respect, you know, that said a lot. But then I think about the Scott Burrell situation, how he just let Jordan roll over him like that. It was interesting. I had a different
0: takeaway with the Burrell thing. Um, Brian, what do you have on the Kerr Jordan
2: yeah, I um, you know, it was exactly how I pictured that it would be. You know, I I didn't imagine it to be like an all-out brawl, but you know, just like a, just a small scuffle. And I always, you know, had known that Phil threw Michael out of practice after that. But then you got to look at at Steve Kerr's background. At that point in time, he had lost his father. His father was, uh, I think, uh, assassinated in Beirut, Lebanon, just a few years before. Then I think it was during the time that Steve Kerr was either in high school or he was at the University of Arizona. So we talked last week about, or was it two weeks ago, about Tony Kukoc. Uh, Do we feel sorry for him because he came up in a crazy situation over there where he's from? Well, Steve Kerr also had some crazy situations he had to deal with. So, And it's not surprising that he stood up for himself, for him to be the smallest guy on the team, guard Michael Jordan during a practice, you know, take one in the eye, and still answer the phone later that night, you know, to talk things out. (laughs) (laughs) those are the characters guy uh so it's it's not surprising to see later on like how valuable steve kerr was on the court after that altercation
1: to me it makes me look at uh phil jackson a little bit more i I think he knows his cast of characters and i think he might have knew that you know if jordan kept picking with steve kerr that something might happen that's why he kept calling the fouls. i think Phil knows when things might be getting a little bit out of hand, and he just lets it get there just to see, you know, just let the guys see how far they're taking it and have them uh, be able to reconcile themselves. So made me look at the genius of Phil a little bit more.
2: That's a great point, too, because – and he threw MJ out of the practice, right? He didn't yeah. side with MJ just because he was, you know, their, their alpha on their team. That's yeah. a great point.
0: Maybe like a message to the rest of the team then. Yeah, that's a, that is an excellent point. The game within the game, I guess, right? Yeah. One of the things that surprised me is I just I never knew what happened. I, you just hear that, oh, Jordan punched Kerr. I figured that Kerr just kept fouling him and pissing him off, and he, had a, and he just got mad, just turned around and punched him in the eye. So when they told us what actually really happened, I was like, okay, I can understand that. And Steve Kerr the other day said that that story was so much larger than it should have been. Because he said every year there's two or three fights in practice that are that are swinging. When players are swinging at each other. That's a that's a known thing, and you know everyone blew it way out of proportion because it's like oh you know Michael Jordan punched Steve Kerr, but I was surprised also that Kerr that uh, Jordan asked for Kerr's number and called him and apologized to him on the phone and said look man it's not about you I apologize ha da da and they had a good conversation because mm-hmm. the Jordan that we think we know especially through the first seven point six episodes is I may be wrong, but I'm, you're not going to hear me ever tell you I'm wrong. I was just thinking of something different. And this time he straight up said, hey, I, I knew I was wrong. I called Steve and I apologized to him. So Corey, you brought up Scott Burrell. <laughs> you guys enjoy that part of the episode? Because I was actually, uh, it's not what I had expected. Jay, what did you think about the whole Scott Burrell thing?
1: Um, People making it seem like Scott Burrell was a good guy for taking the high road, but I think Scott Burrell just, he was just a softie. I think, I think, Jordan was trying to make him tougher, but Scott, he just, he didn't take it. It's just not, it wasn't in him. And maybe Jordan thought he saw something in him, but it just wasn't in him. So, I I don't know. I'm kind of disappointed in Scott Burrell.
0: (laughs) Brian?
2: I'm kind of along that line, too. Jordan said at the outset that he saw Scott Burrell was a guy that had a lot of talent. And he came from, from a good college program. I mean, UConn is nothing to sneeze at. They had Coach Calhoun, Gray Allen. You know, and they made deep runs in the uh, tournament. And so you get a guy coming in from UConn, good size, you know, think he's talented, and you're just trying to pull out the best out of him. It's probably one of those things where Scott Burrell was a very talented guy, talented enough to get on a roster, but just was just satisfied with that. You know, didn't want to be the guy. Didn't really probably care if they won championships or not.
4: Corey?
3: And for me, just some of the things that Michael Jordan was saying, like, we would have to fight. We would have to hash this thing out. I wouldn't have been able to do it. No man, like the things that he was saying, you just have to be some kind of different to be able to take that. I just couldn't fathom another man telling me that, and I'm just sitting here just like, or oh, whatever, Mike being Mike. Like, no. And he, and Mike only did that to certain guys. You never heard about this going on with Charles Oakley. You never heard this going on with Scottie Pippen. You didn't hear about this with Dennis Rodman. Cause I think Mike was weak doing that. I think Mike was the one that was weak. He only picked on certain guys. But, but he did try that with Horace Grant, but he didn't get too far with that. From, ahead, from what
1: I from what I heard, I think he was with everybody, but it was people that like Bill right, who threatened to kill him. Like it was it was certain guys that he he did try with, but they always checked him. <laughs> and I think uh, you know it, once people checked him, that's when he backed off a little bit.
0: You know, he keeps on saying, you know, if you can't handle me in practice, how are you going to handle the other teams in the league? He definitely was a different cat. The thing I took away from from Scott Burrell is I thought maybe that was a story where he drove someone to quit. Mm. And I actually laughed a lot during that part because it was nothing like I thought. I didn't care about him sitting on the sidelines saying, come on, ho, come on, bitch. And the reason why (laughs) is because the reason why, and I think, Brian will probably agree with this because he's played organized Mm -hmm. sports. I haven't played organized sports, but I know I've gone to the the court with my boys every day of the summer for three or four years. And once you have your quote-unquote teammates and those are the people you see all the time, you start talking a lot more casual than you would, you know, a complete stranger. And I know that, you know, my friends and I would talk to each other playing basketball and just hanging out because there was no malice. It was all context, you know. So if someone's like, Jake, man, you drank all the, all the Hennessy, you motherfucker, you bitch, you hoe. You drank all the Hennessy. I was like, ah, oh, fuck you, fuck you. You know what I mean? And, and no one's really mad about it. But the fact that even Michael was like, and he started laughing. He goes, I could not. He was such a nice guy. I could not get him to crack. And so Jordan accepted, you know, that Scotty was that guy. And he joked with him. They showed him joking with him and after the game. But they were all fun at games afterwards. And even Scott Burrell said, when you're practicing and when you're playing the games, he's ruthless. Outside of that, he's the nicest guy ever. And so I think that kind of holds merit to the whole the narrative about, you know, his interaction with Scott Burrell. Now, was he hard as hell on some of his teammates? I think so. Was he a little bit too hard? I'm not that guy, but I'm not sitting with six chips and considered the goat either. You know, and Jordan said winning has a price, leadership has a price. And we'll get to that. But for me, the Scott Burrell piece was surprising, but in a good way. I, I actually laughed a few times during that. I was like, oh, man, it, it's nothing. So when I see Jordan kind of sitting back with his legs crossed in practice, saying, get that layup, ho, to me, to me that's just nothing.
2: Yeah. You got to have those guys on your team because not everybody befits the same exact attitude and demeanor on, on any sports team. You, gotta have, you always have the alpha. You always have one or two guys that are topped off. And then you have the guys who are your good soldiers. You know, they're really good at what they do. You know, you can depend on them. And then you have your guys who are just kind of like Scott Burrell. Or you got you have like your class clown, you know, where they just don't take things too seriously. So it just, it just rounds out a team. It's, he was just the one guy that, that Michael couldn't get under. If he couldn't make him better, I saw that he was just trying to have fun with him and try to get under his skin. And even doing that, he, he wasn't successful at it either.
0: We all know the league is full of people. They're just trying to get to the league. To them, that's the, you know, pinnacle of success. They just want to have a good time, have a good game. But for some people, that's not enough. Right. You, know, you can't go into the Ravens defense 10 years ago and just kind of like, I'm just happy to be here because Ray Lewis is going to get in your ass. You know,
2: and had too. So you had sizzle, they're going to get watch. in your
0: ass. Yeah, <laughs> because they say that we wouldn't, you know, they said Jordan never asked anybody to do something he wouldn't do. So when leaders lead by example, it's kind of hard to bark back if you're not giving it your effort. Like, I wouldn't be happy with, you know, people talking to me like that. You know, I don't have that killer instinct. So I don't know if I could have handled that type of, you know, leader. And maybe like Will Purdue, looking back in time, I would appreciate it. Just like when you yell at your kids. You know, once you see your kids starting to reciprocate and do what you yell at them for, you feel a little good about it. Although it takes 15, 20 years. Just like being a parent. I've never done this before. I can only be a parent the only way I know how. And I think with, with Jordan, a lot of it was I failed in my personal life with my family, you know, losing to my brother all the time. I've got all this other stuff going on. I've lost with the Pistons. None of these people have, have had to do that, and they're not hungry. I need them to be as hungry as me, but they don't have the experience to fall back on that, and it's not their fault. They just happen to be playing basketball with Michael Jordan. So I think for him to drive them so hard and expect them to be like him, that's a 50-50 thing, I think. Yeah, uh, will Purdue Jordan was an asshole and a jerk but we needed that so kind of going just like we were just talking about Burrell you know leadership styles I mean what do you guys think at the end of the day with the results would you would you trade that championship for a nicer leader on your team no
2: absolutely not because
0: we all have our dignity we all have our pride and that's right dignity is good pride never never helps it only hurts right you
2: know, I mean it's <clears throat> just from the experience of playing organized sports for so much of my life. It's, I did when I was younger, Have leaders who were uh, pretty cutthroat and push you and push you and push you until you were over the edge. Um, and, you know, it's, it's that perspective, kind of like with Will Perdue's perspective where you, you know, later on down the line, you see the reasons why they were doing what they were doing. And then eventually when it came up to be my turn later on in the years where, you know, I was one of the top guys on my teams, you know, I'd push, you know, my teammates the same way. Honestly, I wasn't nice about it. I really wasn't. I mean, I remember one time where uh, on the baseball team that I played on uh, in ninth grade, I was chewing this one guy out who was one of the bench guys who drank up all the fucking water. You know, it's like you've well, <laughs> all the starters out on the fucking field, but then you drinking up all the water and when we come into the dugout, there ain't nothing left. You know, it's, it's like one of those things where, you know, you expect like little things like that shit being available to everybody in the dugout too you know, the type of output you're putting out, you know, on the field, uh, you want to have that type of leadership, at least from my perspective, and you want to be able to be driven. I wouldn't be of the opinion where I would trade in a less mean leader in exchange for rings. I would rather have the rings and be pushed to the edge.
0: Remember Ed Reed with that speech, I posted it on my my Instagram. And there's a as a grown adult, you're an adult now, you know, you're not a little kid. And I think that's where people take issue. It's like, okay, if I'm 14 and you're a senior and you're yelling at me to get me better and you're demeaning me, that's just part of life. It sucks, but it's part of life. And it's not not saying it's acceptable. But once you're an adult and you're a man, you're like, you know, who are you talking to like that? You know, I'm a grown man, <laughs> and I've had those moments myself. Like, man, I'm a grown ass man. You don't you don't talk to me like that. But that speech that Ed Reed was talking about, you know, yelling at people in the locker room, like, man, what, why is that trash? Pick that shit up, man. Pick that shit up. You expect to win. How you going to win if you're leaving? You know, so there's that. There's always that guy,
3: like you were saying, and he's going to rub some people the wrong way. But Corey? I'm conflicted. I'm listening to both sides, and it's hard for me to pick a side because ultimately you played to win championships. But another thing is, I'm just, it's good. I'm in the NBA too. I'm a grown man. I got mortgage. I got stuff I take care of. You know, Like some, some people, their parents don't even talk to them like that. or haven't (laughs) never talked to them like that. And so to have another guy that's your equal or your, your peer talk to you like that, I mean, I guess the result, you get the championship or whatever, but still, still the fact is that, you know, it's kind of hard to, you have to be a special type of man to be able to take that. Like, that's why I keep going back to Scott Burrell because, you know, I, I just know how I am. I personally. I wouldn't have been able to take that, and I probably wouldn't have won that championship been off that team or something, (laughs) because I just know how I am. Like I just don't allow anybody to just run over me like that.
0: Yeah, I think when you look back, and I agree with you, it's kind of split, right? Because you play the result. If you look back and you're like, man, that was hard as hell. He was an asshole. But, man, we run a lot of championships because of that style. Man, I'm glad it happened, versus – Man, if we had a better leadership. He was not being such an asshole. Maybe we were we would have won. So you always play the result?
3: What if it wasn't effective? What if you they didn't win the championship and he was like that, like? <laughs> and that becomes that becomes the reason why they didn't win.
1: Right. Yeah. I think that's the difference between a leader and an asshole. Is, it, is the win? <laughs> I think that's the makes the difference. If you win, you're a leader. If you don't, you're an asshole.
2: <laughs> and, that's, and that's a great point. I'm glad you said something that because you see a lot of people on team and it, it's not even organized sports. You can play any pickup game. You always have that one asshole that's like, hey man, why don't you get down low and grab a rebound? Well, what the fuck are you doing camping over in the perimeter? You know what I mean? <laughs> you know. I,
0: but, Brian, hold on. I fucking hate that guy. When you're playing yeah. pickup basketball and there's some, someone's uncle and, but, you, but you just now meeting a dude though. You know? Yeah. And you look yeah. at him like, you ain't got no championship rings. What have you want? You don't talk to me like that. And that, I think that's right. a big difference.
2: Right. And that, and so the thing is though, is that when you have those types of confrontations, you know, within, you know, say they, they are within teams, that's just part of it. It's one of those things where you look back years from when you're finished playing and you're thinking about, man, what did we do? You know, while we were, uh, teammates and you think about all the wins, you think about all the losses, you think about all the fights, all the scuffles, the times where you didn't want to be around so-and-so, but at the very end of it, it's true. It's, it's a brotherhood. Like, you know, you missed that time that you had in the locker room.
4: We got volunteer firemen walking around here cleaning up after grown men. My locker, your locker, is two feet from the garbage can. You come off, take, cut your tape off your ankles, your wrists, and instead of you throwing it in the garbage can, where you throw it at? On the floor. I'm like, listen, guys, this is the little things, man. Pick up your towel. You walking out. The dirty bin is right there when you walk out. Why are you leaving that towel in there for somebody else to come in there and clean up? I did it myself because I didn't want the firemen to have to look at my nasty-ass teammates' towels and have to pick them up all the time. I saw the teammates that can for that. And they can vouch for this story because it's true. Super Bowl year. We ain't winning it if y'all don't do the little things. And did you sense a shift? we started to come together even more so i said we're going to Super Bowl in New Orleans and we're winning
0: it. so when Jordan finishes episode seven and he's talking about you know what it takes to win what are your thoughts because like i said that's one of the the few times we've seen him show some actual emotion and he's actually talking about himself you know Jay what are you thinking
1: i mean it it, it was powerful it, it was interesting and i think at that, he might have been getting emotional because he probably, as he was saying it, he probably was really like thinking back, like, "Wow, this is this is really what it takes." I don't, I don't think he processed it before he said it, and I think that's might that's might have been why he got a little bit emotional because he, while he was saying it, he was thinking about all of the workouts, all of the practices, all of the arguments, all of the losses, and uh, all of the times he didn't um, hit the game winners. He, I think, all of it hit him at that moment while like he was saying like, this is what it takes to win. And I think that quick uh, moment, that quick clip is probably inspiring America. <laughs> I think that, that, was, that was probably one of the most powerful parts of the whole documentary to me.
0: That felt like it could have been the last thing they would, they would say at the end of episode 10, right? So Brian, yeah. what are your thoughts on, on that?
2: Yeah, it's, he's trying to say that this is me. All my experiences, lead up to this and he's the ultra competitor and there's really nothing he can do about that and to know that it did come with a price it came with the price of fame uh, he, he he wasn't anonymous anymore after the times that he he went into the league and started winning he wanted to win so bad because that's just what that was that's what he was born to do but it came at the expense of his own anonymity it came at the expense of probably really close personal relationships that he had had you know previous to that point in his life But I think when it comes down to it, it's just he could not change that piece of himself. And if anybody even tried to make him change, that's a very hurtful thing to think about because, you know, you should think about somebody striving for perfection and striving to be the best and and all in the spirit of competition as something positive. So why should anybody ask him to change, you know, what he is and what he was made to do? I think that's really what brought out that emotion because that this is him that when it comes down to it, that's him in a nutshell. And nobody can change that.
3: Corey, the players uh, benefited from a lot of success with his leadership style being that way because of the way they, they did respond to it. You know, I keep on going back and forth with it, but they responded to what he did with great results and they ended up winning the championship six. That six total championships for um the teams that was together during that that stretch. But he also said in there that that's the way he played. And if that's not the way you play, then don't play that way. But that's the way he played. That's his mentality. It's kind of hard to change a guy from who he was, you know, into something else like where well, you I think you should probably take a softer approach, but that's not how I play. And then you taking that edge off of him then with uh, would, would they even play as good as they did if Jordan wasn't like that, so a lot of players benefit from that success because of it. So it's kind of hard to just take it, just eliminate because you eliminate that, you you eliminating a piece of that that um, that championship run. That's that that goes into the pot too. All that goes into the pot. You know, would they win a championship? You can't really tell because it, that's how he was, and that's what impacted the the fuel to them to go on to win six championships.
0: Yeah. While you were talking, I was thinking. It reminds me a lot about coaching. You always see the coaching in, like, football, right? You have the player's coach, and then you have the coach that rides your ass. And some players respond better to one than the other. Everybody wants to have a player's coach, but, you know, the one that rides your ass takes a certain style. And I think watching Jordan do that, and it's the same as, like, all of you said, you know, I agree with all of you on that. I felt that, you know, this is – he's basically saying – That's just who I am. I can't change. I only know one way to do it. I may not have always done it right, um, but I'm a competitor. I love this game so much, and I wanted to win it no matter the cost. And I think while he's saying that, he's processing, kind of like Jay was saying. He's thinking about a bunch of different things. You know, the price is I had to be an asshole to my teammates. Price is they're going to look back at me as being the jerk. I'm not going to be the most likable guy because all I cared about was winning no matter what it takes. And I think a part of it also was maybe he was kind of Like, man, I'm sorry I had to be like that. That was the only way. I'm really sorry I had to be like that. But that's the only way I know how to do it. And I think that the emotion was kind of getting to him because of that. So let's get to Scotty. (laughs) Oh, Scotty. Yeah, I don't know if you guys went back and listened to the last podcast, but what I do is I always go in and I add buzzer sounds between topics and I add audio clips of things we've talked about. And I play the exact audio clip from that game. I feel kind of bad for Pippin again because... We know he did it, and he got his own segment on this episode showing you know, how royally <laughs> he fucked up. But I think he kind of exposed himself again with an opportunity. And, and the play before that, they had a shot clock violation because Scotty didn't know what to do with the ball and basically threw up a bullshit shot and didn't get, didn't get mm-hmm. nowhere near it. And when Phil drew, drew up the play for Tony, Tony had already made three game-winning shots that season. And it's a shot that Tony's made time and time and time again within the confines of that offense. Scotty Pippen refused to go in. So I played the the press conference too. So the question is, so Scotty said he wished it never would have happened. But then at the same time, he said, I do it again.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. What are your thoughts on that?
2: It's a disappointment, honestly, because at that point in time, he was the leader of that team. And To take yourself out of that game, like, I I mean, Herm Edwards says it, right? You play to win the game. So what was he trying to do at that point in time? Was he trying to prove a point? Was the point trying to be, well, I'm the man. I should get the ball. But Jay, you brought it up. Tony Kukoc had drilled three game winners already prior to that game. It's utter disappointment because I I love Scottie Pittman. I, I have always loved watching him play. But you would expect that, at that point in time, when he's asked to inbound the ball, that other than the guy taking the shot, that's the most important position on the floor at that point in time, is the guy who's inbounding that basketball. You take it back to uh, Christian Leitner's miracle shot, Grant Hill, threw that three-quarter pass. Perfect. If it wasn't him, you know, then who else would have, you know, made such a great inbound pass? But maybe it just, happened to be that that this is how it was supposed to end up because i can't remember who inbound it instead of scotty this time around but the play ended up working and tony hit the game winner but all in all i was disappointed
3: corey it's other oh, bush league man for him to do that i mean a pouting <laughs> you know having that that mentality basketball ultimate team sport and coach drew up an excellent play for that situation had a player to execute the plan countless times. He's done it before. As a leader of the team, you should understand that not every play is going to be designed for you to have the ball in your hand. You know, trust your teammate. You, you watch this guy in practice, you know, you trust the coach. You want a championship with the coach, trust that they're going to put the ball in the right place at the right time. I, I just think it was Bush league for him to act like that.
1: And for me, for me, I think it's, it's like I said, it was Bush league, and it was dumb because you just won the championship. You saw the best player in the world win the championship by passing, passing the ball to win game six against Phoenix. So why would you, why would you not trust that your coach is telling you to pass the ball, figure out a way to pass the ball? But I think it was his ego. I think he knew that he just messed up the play. And I think he wanted to be the one to fix it. You just got to trust your coach and and do the right play.
0: I misremembered because Jordan passed the ball to Horace Grant, who turned around and kicked it out to Paxson. But, I mean, Jordan still passed the ball, but for years I'm saying that Jordan passed the ball to Paxson, but he didn't. He kicked it to Grant, Grant swung it around. Um, I covered it last week. It's obviously one of the most disappointing plays, and his worst effort, it doesn't – I don't think it scars him in NBA history because everybody knows it already happened. But what's disappointing to me is hearing him, you know, retrospect, you know, I wish it wouldn't have happened, but I would have <laughs> done it again. Right. Like, okay. Well, you know, you've had all this time to think about it. You saw the impact it had on your team. Like they weren't, I don't know if they would have won anything, but they sure as hell weren't winning once that happened. Yeah. Because he was the leader of the team. When Jordan was gone, they were saying they loved it. He would put his arm around you and talk you up. You know, he was the player's coach, right? He's the player's coach, you know, and then they get him. Right, right, <laughs> right. So, um, but yeah, I was disappointed in the fact that he he said he wouldn't do it again. And he, he has yet to be on an interview, though, since this whole thing has started. Which is mm. interesting. And a couple things i'm sure you guys have noticed you know horace grant's been i doing a lot of interviews and he's pretty pissed off right now and then craig hodges came out of the woodworks to try to throw fire on jordan after you know uh, last week and a couple of different things which pun and uh, no pun intended because didn't craig hodges wife set his ass on fire or something
4: oh <laughs> man
1: <laughs>
0: i think so man you google that i think i think something oh, yeah, like that happened google i think that. his wife tried to set him on fire <laughs> So Tim Grover was getting and this is uh the last real question before we we wrap this up. So if you guys noticed so Tim Grover's been with him from the beginning too, his trainer. Yeah. And you saw even Grover was getting a little emotional when he said that Jordan called him after they lost to Orlando Magic. People are going to spend 3 hours of their day to watch me. I'm going to give them my full effort. They're going to get the best of me every time I play. Yeah. That was an inspiring thing for him to say, but my question is, was that a message to today's players?
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah, I think I, I think everything Mike said everything uh, uh Tim Groover says and, and Mike those those guys, they always uh stabbing it and, and saying certain things. So uh, it's definitely they were speaking to the uh low management. He was speaking to the low management crowd, I think.
0: <laughs> I don't know. That's what I thought about when I was like I wonder if they put that in the documentary to be a shot at today's players, Brian. What do you think?
2: Um, I mean, it, it could be. Uh, I, I wasn't thinking about it at that point in time, um, but I can see where you're coming from because it's it's kind of that. Well, I've already gone through that life. I've I've had my career, and these are the things that I did to be successful. So when I look at you know some of these cats that are coming up through the league now, I don't know that they're putting in the same intensity and the same work ethic that I'm putting in. Um, but then again, you got to think about it this way, too. It's not every day that we see guys who work like Jordan or LeBron or like Kobe. You, you watch uh, uh, that documentary Muse, and you get a good picture of what Kobe Bryant did to come back from his ACL surgery. Um, so not everybody is you know, made from that same thought. I think that's really what he's trying to say you know, at that point in time, if just trying to relate it to your statement, is that maybe he is trying to maybe encourage in a way. You know the guys coming up, the younger cats coming up to just up their game off the court. You know, and just try to just try to do what it takes to be as great as everybody else was,
0: Mr. Harrison.
3: Well, some like you said, they, they did air, but they did say that back in the day. But they did air it, knowing that everyone is going to be watching. You know, they have the, the clips in there, so they they air certain things. But we all know that those players were cut from a different cloth. I was looking at another, I think another interview with Charles Oakley. He said, we play injured all the time. You know, it, it was just, he wasn't he was even talking about low management. I think it was, uh, have y'all seen Coldest Balls with um, Kevin Hart? They was in the tub. No, I haven't um, seen it. So they're, um, they're sitting in the tub and he's basically, you know, saying how tough that that NBA, that, that version of the NBA was where players would come out regardless of what they had going on. If they could walk, they would go out there and play. And I, I feel like it probably was inserted into that documentary knowing that this, today's players, you know, do just take off games if it was a meaningless game or anything like that. But hey, forget the fact that sometimes people are season ticket holders and want to see their favorite players out there and play and perform. And then you come in there and you see a player in a suit for, for no reason, you know, taking load management. Like I've never heard – like I, I grew up in the Kobe and Jordan era. I didn't, I've never known anything like that. It's disappointing to see that in today's game. I saw Michael play in
0: 93, 92, 93, when I was a senior in high school. Um, One of our dad got tickets. So we always had the seats right behind the basket, like those first or second row, you know, that they're always crashing into. But when we saw the Bulls, we actually had kind of center court up just below the top. So the camera is like right behind your head, which to me is my favorite view. But, you know, I saw Michael play and Scotty play and, you know, they blew out the Dallas Mavericks and Michael didn't play much in the second half, but he, he he balled out in the first half
2: to go along with that. Like I'm jealous, man, that you got to watch uh, Michael play. The other reason why I'm wearing this Jersey too, is because um, I watched one of the last games that the Bulls played in Seattle before. So I got to see Scotty play and, and that team, you know, with Tony Kukoc just coming on and all that stuff. But the one player that I never got to see live was MJ. So I'm, Jealous man that you got to see him play live. That's that's a once in a lifetime for a lot of people.
0: So, guys, what was your favorite part of episode seven and eight? Jay,
1: oh, yeah, yeah. Now, nah, my favorite part was uh, that BJ Armstrong really thought that he uh, <laughs> that he really he really thought he phased Michael. That's that was that was funny to me,
3: <laughs> Corey the Gary Payton thing. He said, he started laughing whenever he was talking about Gary Payton, um, shutting him down or or being able to phase him. And then he was looking at the the iPad or whatever he was looking at. And he was laughing. He was like, the glove was never a problem for me. I had some other stuff going on uh, during that time, but he was a factor. And I know Brian's probably going to like this, that part whenever (laughs) Gary Payton was switched on. You know, Gary Payton wasn't the problem. Everybody knows that like, so I think he did phase him a bit because his numbers did dip. Even if you go back to the seasons when um, Payton would switch on Jordan, he he was a factor. He was a pest to everybody.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the glove obviously affected him. Um, you know, that's pride. That's NBA trash talk. And, you know, Gary Vane and Michael Jordan are probably two of the top four trash talkers in NBA history. That's, that's nothing but respect. But I, was, I did feel a little weird when he was cracking up about that. I was like, oh, man, you know, that's another thats another legend you laughing at right in his face. But, you know, Brian, what are your thoughts on that? Um, because we yeah. did get
2: to see your Sonic, so I'm sorry we didn't cover yeah. that. And then what was your favorite yeah. part of this? Now, that was my favorite part, uh, even though it was like seven minutes long or whatever it was. Um, it's kind of how Corey's thoughts about seeing Kobe at the beginning of that uh, one episode. Um, you know, just seeing the Sonics again. Um, and seeing some names on the back of jerseys that I had forgotten about. It was great to see. And it just it just brought back memories of being a 15-year-old kid and then just knowing that, oh, man, like, oh, we made it to the finals finally, but we're going to get our ass kicked by the Bulls. But at least it's the Bulls, you know. And, and it was just a bunch of memories just rushing back from from my teenage years. But, you know, it, I do think that when they switched, uh, you know, GP to um, to guard Jordan, I think it did make a difference, you know, and, and I don't I, I'm not surprised by MJ, you know, laughing into, you know, the iPad when he was watching that footage of uh, of GP's interview. Um, you know, you can't expect anything less, you know, from MJ. Um, but like he pointed out, you know, both guys are two of the top trash talkers to ever do it in the league. But I, I do believe that he, he created a, a defensive presence that wasn't there the first three games for sure. And you think about it, too, a lot there's not a lot of players who play the point guard position any longer that can both play on the offensive end and defend the post-up game. And I will put it out there and I will say that Gary Payton is the best post-up point guard to ever play this damn game. And yes, I'm biased, but I watched that boy play for the Sonics for damn near a decade before his ass got shipped off to Milwaukee, which was bullshit. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Best to ever do it on the offensive and defensive end at the post as a a point guard.
0: I forgot he was such a a post player. I completely forgot about that. Like Gary Payton was fantastic. Yep. He should have won one for the Lakers. Yeah. And that, (laughs) not to scope creep, but that was the biggest upset in NBA Finals history that I've ever Mm -hmm. seen. I could not figure out for the life of me how the hell that happened. I figured Lakers in a sweep, Lakers in five. Right? I don't know what happened, man. That was, that was just the craziest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Um, I don't know if this was my favorite thing, because I had a lot of things I liked about these episodes, but I thought it was cool, kind of what Jay, what Jay was saying, in a sense, that, you know, BJ Armstrong got his shine, you know, because he's been a big part of this whole thing, and then they gave him. They gave him his game, you know, and, like, I think he was on there talking about it for five, six, seven minutes. You know, so I thought that was kind of cool that BJ got his shine. What do you guys want to see in the next two episodes? We're, we're winding down. We got one week left. I don't know if I said this earlier on a call earlier, but so I was watching Jasmine, Marcus and, um, and Jeffrey interview earlier this week. And the interview was taken, I think just before episode, like the second, just after the second week. And at that point, this was the first time they were seeing it too. I think Jeffrey had seen all of them, all nine. And for Marcus and Jasmine, this was their first time seeing it. So they're learning stuff about their dad that they never knew. And at that time, they were still editing episode ten, so I don't know who's at this point who's even seen it all. I know that Jackie McMullen and all of them were saying they've seen up to nine. I don't know if anyone's seen ten, so I'm I'm thinking ten will be just maybe crazy. But what are you guys expecting other than what they showed us? I think everything they showed us is probably nine.
2: I think they're going to cover the flu game, uh, so it'd be pretty cool to see a little bit more insight into that. Did Michael really have the flu? And then uh, one other thing, I do want to see them talk about and i hope i hope brian russell is interviewed was it a push-off on that final shot i don't personally think so i thought it was a good crossover he just just like he just had his left hand on him and he just you know just kind of moved him away but i don't think that it was an offensive foul because a lot of people will argue the fact that it was a push-off but i hope they talk about that for a minute and i hope brian russell gets on and talks about it too
0: You know, there's one angle shows it's a push, and one angle shows it's just like you said. The physics support that it wasn't a push and the way Brian's, his body momentum, it's just like going back to the shot against Craig Elo. Craig Elo flailed out of the screen. He couldn't stop, and that's why we say Ron Harper couldn't have stopped either, even if Ron Harper was on him. He would have just shot by, but yeah, that's interesting. That that would be funny, because you know there were teammates on the Wizards after that. Yeah.
3: Corey, what do you want to see? Same um, flu game. I want to See exactly was this actually the flu? I I I contested this so many times, you know, with the the severity of it. Like I I just wanted to know, like, was did he really have the flu? Because now I'm really starting to think after watching all these other episodes how he used things to fuel his desire to play or play with an edge or something like that. And so I just want to know, did he one hundred percent have? The flu was he getting over it because you know he I think he had like 38, 40 some points that game right? Yeah, he he balled out. I mean, what the you, everybody on here has had the flu before. That was some superhuman stuff. If he if you actually had the flu, he's passing out on Scottie Pippen. And, you know, it just it just seemed like a lot of theatrics. And I mean, I really want to know did this man actually have the flu? Like, finally tell us that you had the flu.
2: It, at least it wasn't a wheelchair like Paul Pierce's ass,
1: right?
0: Uh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> they're saying Paul Pierce actually had to take a shit or something. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, I heard, that, too. I heard yeah. that Yeah, I
1: heard that. Um,
0: <laughs> I, my thoughts on the flu game before we even see it, because you're probably right. We're probably going to see it. I think he may, he may have had the flu. And by the time the game came, he probably had flu like symptoms. I doubt he was running a temperature. Maybe he was running 99.5 instead of 98.6. Cause you're right. I mean, that's a lot and championship level 38 points or whatever it was, you know, I mean, who knows? Um, I don't know what I want to see. They're going to talk about this guy who basically became a father figure to him. Um, which I think is interesting psychologically in another way where he just, he needs to have another male figure by his side. Who's a little older as a mentor. And I, I don't know where that comes from. I mean, they said it comes from being around his father the whole time, but his father was tough love on him as a kid, as we saw. I think somewhere they're saying that Larry was like father's favorite and Michael was kind of more of the mama's boy. So I don't know if once he gained his father's adoration and his father just never left his side, I don't know if he had that void to fill. I guess we're going to find out. But I've said before on episode 10, I want to see all the Bulls. I want to see that championship team all sitting around kind of laughing and cutting it up. And I think the fallout from this is I'm curious to see how many people are going to come out of the woodworks and, and contest stuff that they've seen or they've heard during this Last Dance docuseries. You guys got any parting shots before we roll off?
3: Supposedly, I, I did hear that they cut off um, some, some audio from Horace Grant. And he basically was saying, Michael don't to didn't want to see me then, and he don't want to see me now.
0: I've heard that too. Well, is it, what's the show, The, the
3: Undisputed? Undisputed,
0: yeah. Yeah. Skip, skip, skip. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. we will talk to you next week. All right, man. Have a good one. All right. Thanks for playing. All right. One thing, Jay Jacobs of the I Hate Average podcast and Corey Harrison of the Outer Bound Sports Podcast and Brian Coleman for joining the show. We have one more of these episodes left. Now it's time for me to thank my sponsors. But first... If you want some swag, go to tspring.com and look up hard parking podcast. You can buy a shirt, you can buy a mug. Want to thank Talk Mobile. Talk Mobile is our title sponsor an innovator that works in retail and works with organizations like T-Mobile to operate stores throughout Arizona, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Louisiana. For more information to jumpstart your career, please visit TalkMobileNet. Net. Also want to thank DressUpBolts.com, Higher Quality Detail, and Tempe, Arizona, the last air brand motorsports clothing. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, reach us at hardparkingpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, you can follow me on Instagram at NA2NSX or JHAE underscore travels. Hit us up on Facebook, Hard Parking Media. Follow us on Twitter, Hard Parking Pod. I can't grow unless you tell people how fantastic this podcast is. So let's do this. Let's grow this scene together. Later.